Hello and welcome to another episode of The Modern Consultant. I'm your host, Mark Aarons, and on today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Christine McKay. Christine is an expert business negotiator. She's worked on deals valued at over $100 billion. That's billion with a B. And I wanted to do this one as a wonderful follow-up to the Jay Abraham episode because in this episode, we actually get into the nitty-gritty of negotiation itself, which is, of course, pairing very nicely with the buying, growing, and selling of businesses. However, we don't just talk about negotiation because one of the things that Christine talks about is how negotiation is a way of life. It's involved in every single part of life, our relationships, businesses, even when we're going to the grocery store. And in today's episode, we talk about the four different kinds of negotiation styles, and you'll be able to identify which one you are by the end of it. And we also talk about how to actually apply this to selecting better clients. You can pick someone's negotiation style out before you've ever signed them as a client and figure out if they're going to make your life a living hell, basically, if you decide to sign a long-term contract with them. If there's nothing else you get out of this episode, you should listen for that. But we get into so much more because we go deep. We talk about how it is that Christine went from being 19 and pregnant to then getting into Harvard and becoming the expert negotiator that she is today that now serves on multiple boards helping to uplift women professionally and in their personal lives. There's so much for us to cover. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. And with that, I'll see you on the other side. Christine, I just want to say welcome to the show. It is an honor to have you. And everyone would have read the intro and they would have seen the stuff about, okay, you know, $2.4 billion deals, you know, and several hundred billion dollars worth of like contracts and so. But to get started, I would love to ask you about, um, I have it here because I don't want to mispronounce this. Could you tell us about She is Hope? She is Hope LA. Yeah, She is Hope is a nonprofit that I am involved with that helps support single moms. And the way that I describe it is they help, it helps newly minted single moms, um, a lot of whom have, have virtually nothing. They have um, no credit. They have no money. They, a lot of times their partners have locked them out of their financials, uh, anything financial. They essentially leave their homes with their kids and maybe the clothes on their back and maybe a couple suitcases. And they often don't have a good education. And so we do programs that help help them get on their feet. And what's unique about She Is Hope LA is that we not only do we do these programs, but we also, our founder, uh, Tisha Janenigan, is a real estate broker. And so we have a real estate office and we teach moms how to become realtors, how to sell real estate, and we have been using real estate as a way to help them get on their feet. And our our current objective is to um, buy a multi-dwelling unit so that we can provide safe housing in Los Angeles for single moms and their children. And uh, it's it's an amazing organization and and one of the nonprofits that I'm very that I've been very involved with over the past few years. 
Yeah, when I read that and found that, it's like, oh, we we need to talk about this. Uh, that's 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 very cool. I have three little sisters, and you know, just uh, to meet someone that's as dedicated as you are uh, to just supporting women uh, is something that was really important to me. Uh, which is why I was also curious about the other organization that you seem to be on the board of. And am I pronouncing this correctly? Most? It is most. And it okay. stands for motivating our students through experience. And education saved my life. So both of these organizations are very personal to me because they're part of my story. And education saved my life. And we are a college access program and mentorship program. And we start mentoring girls from underserved communities starting at the grade six. And then we mentor them all the way through their undergrad experience, and which is very unusual. We work with families to help get financial aid. We have scholarship programs ourselves. We, um, it's just a really amazing program. And our scholars have gone on to earn MBAs from top Ivy League institutions, work in our, our leaders in banking in financial services and real estate, um, in entertainment, uh, science. And it's just really, it, 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 I, and I am the president of the board of most at this moment. And, and it just, it's such an amazing organization and mm. both all, I do a lot of volunteer work. I love philanthropy and I love finding ways to give back to my community and mm -hmm. one of the, and I have three daughters so um you know these two organizations she is hope los angeles and most are just really integral to my own story and they're just a nat natural extension of me giving back um in a way that I was able to benefit from through you know people providing me support when I was um when I was homeless and coming out of that to uh, when I was a single mom, getting my undergraduate degree, uh, you know, all the way through. And if I had had a mentor through high school that was a more formalized mentor program, I might not have ended up going down some mm -hmm. of the roads that I went. Um, and so I love the intersection of both of these organizations in my world. So I love it. And that is the perfect segue to the question that I can hear everybody uh, asking in their minds right now, which is, you know, from 19, I believe it was, and being a single mother to then going to Harvard. And then now, you know, well, the founder of, you know, Venn Negotiation, could you tell us more about that story? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a story that continues to unfold for me in a really interesting way. Um, so when I was 19, I, I had had a really successful high school career. I was, you know, I competed in public speaking. I was a beauty queen. I was a foreign exchange student to Germany. I was an honor student, all those things. I was voted most likely to succeed. Now, I only had 24 kids in my, my class. So it was a small pool of people from rural Montana. But um, I had big ideas and big plans. And um, what happened for me is I found this really this thing that I thought was really awesome and it was called alcohol. And mm -hmm. I started drinking a lot um, and um, and my alcohol and that alcohol led me to getting pregnant when I was 19. 
and um, led me to being homeless at that time and, you know, led me to marry a not nice person that led me to be on welfare for a decade. And, um, and then I woke up one day and I wanted a different life. And I didn't realize then that alcohol was kind of the driver of what was going on for me. And it wasn't until it, it's actually only been in the last couple of years that I've realized what alcohol had done has done to my life. Um, but I decided I wanted a different life and I sobered up enough to, to be able to figure out how to get myself to a community college. I got a 4.0 at a community college. I got a scholarship to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in upstate New York, where I was an honor student. Um, I was single at the time. I was, had separated from my husband at the time. And I did that with three, three little kids, five, four, and three. And, um, you know, and then I, I remarried and uh, I landed a really amazing job out of my undergraduate program and with what's now Verizon. And I always wanted to do international business. I loved from that time that I was a foreign exchange student in high school, I was bitten by the bug of multicultural work. Uh, that still is a huge driver for me. And I, my husband, whom I just recently celebrated 30 amazing years. Oh, congratulations. Um, was super supportive of that. And that opportunity created, you know, when I took that opportunity, I didn't know where it was going to lead me. And it led me to Harvard Business School. And um, to the best of my knowledge, I'm the only person to, to have graduated from Harvard Business School, who was at one time homeless and a single mom of three kids. And so, um, and then, you know, and, and kind of alcohol has taken me on this really crappy journey that's been really beautiful at the same time. And it saved me from a lot of things and then it quit working for me. And so I'm very open about being on our journey of recovery. And I've been on a journey of recovery for over two years now. And my whole universe has changed as a result of that. And I accomplished quite a bit in my life, even when alcohol was part of my life. Um, but now that it is no longer part of my life, the, the world is just, the aperture of the world has just opened up significantly for me mm. and I'm able to show up and be more present and to give in a much more significant way to my community my clients and and my family and that's a real honor to be able to do that and I'm eternally grateful for the opportunity to be on that journey and to be exploring life in a very different way that is an incredibly transparent and deeply impactful story. Thank you for sharing it. There are a couple threads within it that I would love to go just a bit deeper on uh, for my own personal selfish interests, which I'll you know also be transparent with as well. Uh, my grandfather uh, is believed to have poisoned himself, uh, and so I never met him. Uh, and I've always been personally interested in the transformation uh, of humans. Like how do we turn the inner world around so that we can then have a better outer world around us? And I've heard, uh, 
there's this phrase that you shared that really stood out to me, which was the, the first negotiation starts with yourself, you know? And so I'm very curious to hear more about, uh, the kind of negotiation that you had with yourself to then make all of these changes that have now positively impacted, not just your life, but the lives of people around the world. Yeah, I mean, the hardest part of any negotiation occurs in the six inches between our ears. Um, that is, we convince ourselves, our, first of all, our brains just lie to us, right? We have this, this, this view that when we're talking to ourselves that somehow there's truth in what we're telling ourselves, and usually it's bullshit. And, um, and so what I found, it was actually right before I published and released my book, Why Not Ask, a conversation about getting more. So it was written when I was still drinking and I published it, um, what, two weeks after I quit drinking or a week after I quit drinking, actually. And, um, and the book coming out was a huge catalyst for me. I have had for many years, as, as most of us do, I had really big goals and dreams and I and I had actually accomplished huge things in my career and in my life and um, I've done amazing things I've seen amazing things I've just lived such a an amazing life and but when I remember I was sitting um, I belong to a business club called City Club Los City Club Los Angeles and I was sitting there at the bar and I was having a drink and all of a sudden, I was just struck by something that said, you have this book coming out and you have this opportunity to make a big impact on the world. But your relationship, Christine, with alcohol is going to mess that up. Hmm. And so you need to change that relationship. And I and it was such a clear message for me. And I was like, OK. And so I, I quit drinking. And um, I don't know if you know who Lee Steinberg is, but Lee, Lee is the real Jerry Maguire. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's also Patrick Mahomes' uh, agent. And I had interviewed Lee for my podcast. And Lee is very transparent about his recovery story. And his sharing his recovery story with me was a massive catalyst for me to go seek help to to change that relationship with alcohol. And what I realized in that process was that I can my I cannot have a relationship with alcohol. Alcohol takes me down a path that is depressive, that is destructive, that is just not healthy. It's not healthy for me and it's not healthy for the people I care about. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not an angry drunk. I'm not, I've never been arrested. I've never, none of that stuff, right. Has happened to me. And I'm, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but alcohol in and of itself and the decision to negotiate that was, it was the hardest decision I've ever made. I've never, I've done a lot of hard things in my life and giving up alcohol was the hardest decision and the hardest thing I've ever done. And the thing that's been amazing about it is that my journey in sobriety has seriously informed me mm -hmm. who I am as a negotiator. It has elevated my negotiation in, in such an incredible and amazing way. 
um, early in my negotiation career, uh, as a woman negotiating all over the world um, and always being the only woman in the room, um, it was, or you generally, there's like five women who I've negotiated with in my entire 30-year career. It's very small. But I now, I, I started to recognize in sobriety what how I negotiated early in my career, which was very much what how most of us are taught to negotiate. It's like my fists are clenched. I'm crossing my body. It's like, this is mine. I dare you to come and take it. Right. I dare you. Let's you gotta you're gonna have to you're gonna have to fight for everything I give you. And in my sobriety journey, what I learned and what I started observing and I started observing this well before I got sober, but in sobriety it's been magnified for me. And that is that um, if I just unclench my fists and I drop my hands and I approach a negotiation with open arms and instead of saying, I dare you to take it, I say, here's what I have to give. It changes the entire conversation. It makes the entire and and that's it and that's the thing. It makes it a conversation. It's not a battle. It's not a fight. It's a conversation. It's a conversation about a relationship. And and I say all the time that that's the crux of what negotiation is. It's a conversation about a relationship, and you cannot win a relationship, but you can get more value out of it. And so when we go to the negotiation table with our arms open, not being 100% transparent so that somebody knows your your proprietary information or the depth of your finance, they don't need to know all that stuff. But it's more like this concept of being translucent. It's like, how do I share? How, how do I be open enough with you that we're building trust and we're building on a relationship? And, and give you the information you need. So we figure out how to work together to create a better hope and more hopeful future for both both of us and our company. And that, and sobriety has given me the language to talk about that in a different way. And, and it all started with Lee Steinberg. That is incredible. And there's two things that it makes me think of because... Uh, the first is one of our past uh, podcast guests, uh, Gamal Codner. Uh, he's also a past uh, client for uh, full disclosure. But one of the things that he does is he basically helps e-commerce businesses prepare to exit, you know, and so negotiation. <laughs> and he also has a background in M&A. And he seems to take a very similar approach. I've noticed this transparency to the way that he approaches just even sharing uh, information that's just oh wow just trust him more and I that brings me to the second thing that everything you shared just made me think of which is styles of negotiation in your book you talk about four different styles could you tell us more about that and maybe even self-identify uh, where you think you fall oh yeah definitely so what I've identified in my career is that there are four primary styles now, the best negotiators in the world are seven years old. And the reason why they're stopping <laughs> at eight, something clicks in our brain and we start recognizing consequences. So no takes on a more significant meaning. 
And so when we're seven, we have no problem going and asking our, our whatever parental figures we have, grandparents, et cetera, whatever the adults are in our life. And we'll go on out, we'll ask for something and we'll get a, get a no. And we're like, well, darn it. And then we'll go and we'll ask another adult and we get a no. And then we'll go ask another one and we get a yes. And we start to recognize when we're getting yeses. And, and yeses feel better than getting no's. So we start to adapt and we start wrecking. And most adults, we surround ourselves with people that, unfortunately, we tend to surround ourselves with people who are similar to us. So we recognize this pattern that when we ask in a certain way of certain types of people, we start to get more yeses. And so we develop this default style for asking for what we want. And for some people, they do that in a very aggressive way. Now, media, politics, and the film and TV industry have exacerbated this. And so we think that this really aggressive, um, either aggressive, like physically aggressive or passive aggressive style is what a, a good negotiator looks like. And that could not be farther from the truth. And we call that style a champion. And a champion is somebody who is, they go into, they see negotiation as a battle. They're, they're like fist clenched. They're like really all about, um, you know, winning at all costs. And they see that, see negotiation as a battle. They go into it fully armed and fully armored. And their number one objective is to wipe you off the planet. They want, they will take you for everything. Now, politics aside, a very classic um, champion negotiation style um, is Donald Trump when he's in his bravado. When he, when you are, when he perceives he has more power than you, he is a champion. Now, we'll talk a minute about it, the opposite of the champion style. Um, but so somebody who sees that they have more power. Um, and they want to exercise that power um, is a champion. And um, and the challenge with champions is that they're very non-value creating. So they don't look for ways of adding more value. They have mm. they get fixated on what it is they want, and they'll only negotiate for what they want. And everything else is irrelevant to them. And, and they will hammer you literally to get what they want. And they, not only do they not want you to get what you want, their whole view is that it's more important that you lose than uh. that they win even. And so that's kind of the champion. And we have this really messed up view about thinking that that's an effective style of negotiating. Mm which it's absolutely not. The flip if you'd that, allow me to interject, there's just this really, would you say it, it sounds like a zero-sum mentality, but worse? It is a zero-sum mentality. And we have to be careful. There's not a huge percentage of people who fall into that negotiation style. Most of us, if we close our eyes, we can think of at least one person in our life who falls into that camp. But what happens is all of these styles, we use all of these styles. We just are not, we just don't label them. And so we don't know when we're using them. 
Right. So for somebody who this is a default style to, it's somebody who feels that they had to fight a lot in life. Early in my career, I was definitely a champion. I thought I, I, I had a chip on my shoulder as a woman negotiating an international, large international mergers and acquisitions deals with ministers of finance and telecommunications and government officials and CEOs of banks and all that kind of stuff. I like I had to prove myself. I and so I did that with an iron fist. And my I had a nickname when I was early in my career. It was called the Hammer. That was my nickname. And so, so I was definitely a champion. I'd cut you off at your knees because I figured you were going to do that to me. And um, and it's not a pretty look. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't work. It's just not effective. And you end up getting bull. You get, end up getting a bullseye like everywhere on your body and people are like gonna and they'll gang up on you when you have yeah. that style because it's like i'm gonna take you out kind of thing yeah. so it doesn't it fosters no goodwill anywhere um but the thing is is that people who have that style hurt people hurt people <laughs> people who lean into that style tend to be what i've learned is tend to be very hurt people and they, and so when I encounter that style today, I spend more time because it's a very emotional style. I spend more time understanding, trying to understand the source of the hurt and figuring out how to work through that with that person. Oh, that's excellent because that actually reminds me of a YouTube short of yours that I saw uh, where you mentioned, I think it's a, uh, if if uh, vulnerability, you know, is used as a tactic, then it's just manipulation, you know, but it sounds like you're, yeah, yes. please. Yes, tactical empathy. Yeah. Tactical empathy, which is a Chris Voss language. And um, he wrote the book, Never Split the Difference. And he and I have very divergent views on negotiation. Um, the notion of tactical empathy is about feeling what the other person is feeling. It's like, there is some, it, it's an intense and emotional connection with the person you, you are negotiating with. And his world is, Chris's view is that you, it's tactical empathy, but tactical is by definition about warfare. It's about how we maneuver military forces in order to gain an advantage. So you cannot have a warfare mentality and empathy at the same time. Those two things are completely and utterly incompatible. You either are tactical or you are empathetic, but you cannot be both at the same time by definition. And so, so, so yeah, I mean, I consider tactical empathy a very champion style. It's how do I, how do I take advantage of your emotional vulnerability and use it to my advantage? And that to me is pure manipulation, which that is a very champion behavior because champions are very manipulative. They're very, they can be very passive aggressive and sometimes they can be very aggressive and they can, I mean, I've had people throw things at me. Wow. Um, In a negotiation? Oh yeah. I had somebody throw throw a teacup clean across the room, Bob. Oh yeah. I've seen it all. I've seen it all. Um, That is wild. Yeah, I know. I've seen it all. Um, and, and so, 
the so that so that champion style right which we've now spent a number of minutes talking about because people are being taught that that's what we should we should be that by showing strength and power in negotiation and beating your counterparts into submission that means you win and part of that is because we have we have the wrong metric for how we evaluate success in negotiation people wrongly think that they've successfully negotiated a deal when it gets signed. Mm -hmm. That's not when you know whether the deal was successful. You know when the deal was successful after you lived in it. Mm -hmm. Because signing the deal is its a terrible metric of whether or not the deal was good. Because even in an M&A situation, which was a huge chunk of my career, I've had Clients, friends, ever tons of people buy businesses and they're all excited on the day. They're excited about selling it. They're excited about buying it. And the in the they go out and they celebrate. They have this big dinner. They're all slapping each other's backs and shaking hands and everyone's laughing and smiling. And six months into it, they're miserable. Hmm. Because they they bought a bad company, they bought the that they're they're like the buyers uncovering garbage. They they're like, oh my god, this was the revenue was wrong, the profits aren't there, the mm -hmm. inventory isn't right. The people who are selling are like, oh my god, they're driving my business into the ground. They're sullying my name. They're like, like they're just this happens all the time. So the signing the deal is not an effective metric for whether the deal was a good deal um, at all. Um, Seeing a parallel here between the signing of the deal for a business and a house, because I have several friends who you know bought a house and then like just a couple months into it, they're like, oh, this was a nightmare, this was a mistake. I need to sell, I need to get out. Yep, happens all the time, all but the time. I rudely interrupted you, please That's tell okay. us no more. Not. Because there, so, there's three more styles I, yeah, I know that you mentioned. More, there's yeah, three more styles. So the third style, the the opposite of a champion is a benefactor, um, and a benefactor. They are really the more. They're even more dangerous than than the champion. The champion, you know, is an asshole, and you have to decide: Am I going to do business with an asshole? Right. Because if, if they're really horrible to you in, in the negotiation process, they're going to be even worse once you close the deal. That, that is a given. But a benefactor, they hate negotiation and they're terrified of it and they hate conflict. So they see negotiation as conflict instead of conversation. And because they see it as conflict and they want to run away from it, they'll agree to stuff that they cannot deliver on just to get the conversation moving. And so you won't know until you're well into the deal that that delivery time that they said they could meet, they can't even come close to meeting, that feature that they said they have, they don't have and you're relying on it. Like, and they, and so they walk away. What happens with them is that they walk away from the deal and because they don't stand up for what they want, they feel like they've been treated poorly in the negotiation. And they blame whomever that they're negotiating for that, with for, 
right? So they lay blame and they take no accountability and they, because they want to play the victim. And so what happens when they're playing the victim is that once you're in the deal, they actually revert to being a passive aggressive champion and they start undermining you and the deal. These two bookends of the benefactor and the champion are the most value destructive styles of any styles. Now, there are times when when you when you don't rely on them as your default, as your primary style, there are times when I will lean into being a champion in a moment when somebody is pressing against my value system and I've repeatedly said no and they are not respecting the boundary, I will get champion to defend my boundary. Like this is this is a no, this violates my value system. I am not doing this and I will get more aggressive about that if they refuse to listen. If somebody is in a completely broken um, relationship and there's and and you need to find ways of prepare, repairing it i will lean into a benefactor style for a moment mm. to make certain that i'm in a position of listening more interesting right and that i'm not insinuating that i'm willing to listen harder to what the problem is because benefactors can do that they just that they'll they'll not they're they tend to be more quiet in the negotiation than any of the other styles um but you can't but you don't want to rely on a benefactor style for the bulk of your negotiation that will not yield an effective outcome the third style is a maverick and mavericks are what um in negotiation parlance are called positional negotiators so they take and they have a checklist and they say, I'm going to negotiate these 10 things. These 10 things are all important to me. Now, what they've not done is they've usually not evaluated which of those 10 things are most important to them. I see. And yeah. so they look at their list and they start with number one and they negotiate for it. And they get it. They get two. They get three. But they don't get four. And they get a little belligerent about not getting four. And they can get a little loud about it, a little aggressive about it. And they'll eventually like move on, but they'll fight really hard for it. Then they'll get five, six, seven, eight, and they don't get nine. And the same behavior shows up as with number four. And then they get 10. And so they look at the cross their, their list of 10 things and they say, okay, I got eight out of 10. I guess that's okay, right? Mm-hmm. But what they didn't realize is that if they combined number two and nine with numbers three and seven, that those four in and of themselves would have created more value than any of the eight single things issues that they got. So they're so they miss opportunities to generate real meaningful value because they are doing this positional negotiating. So they're not looking at ways of creating value. They also tend to get very myopic when they're in that, when they're negotiating that item. A good indicator of this is when somebody just starts going clause by clause by clause in a contract instead of talking about the broader issues. And then the fourth style is an ambassador, which that is in transparency. That is my style. I am an ambassador. Um, 
And ambassadors, we tend to look for really creative ways of finding value. Probably our biggest downfall is that we are always looking for more ways to create value. So we kind of time suck the negotiation. So we we are not very efficient negotiators because um, because we're always looking for more ways of creating value. Um, and but the ambassador style is really about collaboration and problem joint problem solving. Like when I negotiate, if I'm in a physical room with somebody, my preferred seat is right next to the person I'm negotiating. I like whiteboarding with my counterparts. I like problem solving with my counterparts. I like the conversation of negotiation. And that's when I, and I find most really effective negotiators tend to be more ambassadorial um, in their style. And they, but they also know how to bring in the other styles at different times and be um, intentional about it. I know when I'm, when I'm leaning into a benefactor style, I know when I'm leaning into a maverick. I know when I'm leaning into a champion, but I've moved from being a default champion to being a default ambassador. I trained myself how to do that over my career. I really like that piece. There's, well, there's a lot uh, to dive into there. One of the bigger themes that I'm hearing within that is really a growth mindset, Carol Dweck, you know, where it's like we can actually change our negotiation style, we can change the inner workings of our mind to be able to then adapt uh, and default to uh, a different way of being, a different way of seeing the world, and a different way of then acting in negotiation as well. The other theme that I heard in there, well, I just also want to recap to make sure I understand uh, the four styles. Like the the first, you know, with the, uh, let me just check my notes here. I want to make sure that I don't misquote uh, the champion. Uh, more aggressive, you know, zero-sum approach to negotiation. And then uh, we have the benefactor, you know, uh, the benefactor being more on the passive side, but also has the potential to become passive-aggressive. And then the maverick uh, will line item every single part of the negotiation to maximize <laughs> everything that they need to go through it sounds like and then we've got the ambassadors uh who negotiate uh from a win-win um style of negotiation does that sound about right yeah yep absolutely so uh, to to then follow up on that piece um there's another quote here that i actually read in the book that i really really loved um that i want to dive into which is get people to negotiate the assumptions first don't talk numbers Talk about assumptions used to get to the numbers. Once people agree to the assumptions, it's harder to argue about the output. Please tell me more. I'm fascinated. Yeah. So I mean, one of the things that one of the mistakes that I think a lot of negotiators do is they focus on price, um, whether that's the price that they're selling, the price they're buying, but they focus on that price. But the reality is, is that price is the answer to a math problem. Right. If I have no understanding of how somebody ar arrived at that at that answer, right, then I start haggling. Right. Mm -hmm. it, then that's all I'm doing. And in the book, I talk about 
how I bought, I decided to go buy two cars for the price of one, right? Brand new, brand spanking new cars. And, um, you know, and I was able to do that because I wasn't going to negotiate the price. I developed an assumption, a set of assumptions about the math that led to the price so that I could start negotiating the different elements of the math problem. And when I'm negotiating the, the, the math problem and not focused on the price or the output, then I look at the different assumptions. And if I can get the, if I can get agreement on the assumptions as they go into the math problem, then the answer no longer matters. I mean, I, I mean, in that, in the, in the story, in the book, you know, we, I ended up being wrong about one of my assumptions around inventory holding costs. And so I had assumed the price of these vehicles based on a bunch of different variables. And one of those variables was inventory holding cost. And so that when we were negotiating that and I made the offer to buy two brand new cars for the price of one, and, you know, they, they, they balked at that, um, I literally said, where am I, where's my math wrong? Mm. What are, what assumption or a set of assumptions have I made that makes my math incorrect? And for buying two cars for the price of one, it was the inventory holding cost. I was off by about $5,000. So we bought two brand new cars for the price of one plus $5,000, right? And, you know, and I, and I, and it happened, I was negotiating a really big deal of, multi multi-million dollar deal um with a very large very well-known uh cell phone provider and you know it was the contract was like 150 pages long with lots of exhibits and links and policies and procedures it was um it was a negotiation that took many many months and you know we spent i think we spent something like Four meetings negotiating drug testing and hiring practices, which were in the contract. We spent 15 minutes negotiating price. Mm. 15 minutes. That was it. Mm. Because we negotiated all the math of, of the, the, we negotiated all the math. And so the price outcome, there was nothing left to negotiate. All we would be doing would be dickering and haggling over over a number, and it and we didn't need to because we'd already we'd both arrived at the the math. And so when we negotiate, when we take time to es- establish in a set of assumptions and theories about what the math looks like for us, as well as what the math looks might look like for our counterparts, and we use the negotiation conversation as a way of exploring whether we're accurate or not about our, our, our set of assumptions, then we get to have this conversation about the math and, and the number doesn't matter so much anymore. I want to tie this back to the concept of the four different kinds of negotiators and to also tie it with something that I know that our listeners are very interested in uh, because modern consultant podcast, uh, at many of them being independent consultants. Uh, and the question is, can we 
use the four styles of negotiation, how somebody negotiates with us when we're getting ready to say enroll a client, start a new agreement or something like that as an indicator of how they will behave or act while we're delivering uh, the service as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, people don't shed their, and most people don't spend very much time understanding who they are. Right. So we show up in a way. And when we show up in that way, that's how we show up most of the time. Mm -hmm. And and we do it unconsciously. We're, we we convince ourselves, oh, this is just who we are. Um, a, a very simple example. I was visiting one of my daughters who lives in Guatemala and we were walking down the street. I said, oh, that's really interesting. And she's like, hey, what what what's really interesting? I said, my right leg, my right foot is turned out a few degrees more than it normally would be. Huh. I know how my body reacts in stress. I wow. know. I, I pay attention. I've studied it. I, I, I pay attention to that because my body is a leading indicator of my feelings and my feelings used to drive my behavior. Mm. Now my body, I look at my body as a litmus test to say, how am I feeling about something? And then I can say, oh, then I can label this. If, then if my body's reacting, I can label the emotion. And then I can ask questions to get out of the emotion and choose to make different answers. Mm. And so the problem is that, or make different decisions. The problem is, is that most people have no understanding of how their body reacts and they have no idea how they're showing up and how they're behaving and what, how that might be, how others might perceive that. And so as a result of that, um, they just keep showing up at the way they show up in the negotiation is, is exactly how they're going to show up when you're delivering. You're not, you're not going to get a different person. You're just not. It's the same person. They might not be that way all the time, but that's how they're going to be. That's just who they are. That's then, and they're not interested in making changes to to how they show up. Oh, that's so fascinating. Personally, fascinating for me because I've got a number of negotiations myself coming up. Uh, not nearly in the uh, size of uh, billions yet, uh, but you know, significant for us and our small consultancy. And one yeah, thing that I... Are, billions are just more zeros. This it's, is true. It, it's just, it's just <laughs> zeros. That's all it is, zeros. It's, like, it's just more zeros. Uh, that 1,000%. You are 1,000% you are, you are right. Uh, the, the, the thing that I've been realizing in some of the sales conversations uh, and agreements and so that we've been, you know, in discussions in is just noticing the negotiation styles. And now that you've given me this language uh, to better codify, you know, identify uh, what style someone's using, I didn't quite have language to be able to name it, but I'm finding this helpful to even create disqualifying criteria. Because like I had a feeling before I was like, mm, yeah, you have the money. Yeah, you have the, the, all these other check boxes are there, but there's these other pieces where it's like, 
from all the years of me doing service work, I, I no, this is going to be bad. <laughs> I, I just feel it. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, when I'm taking on new clients, I have a checklist that tests whether or not my, my style, my negotiation philosophy is compatible or not with a client. Right. Because if I, as an ambassador, if I have a client who's a champion, right, that's very incompatible. Yep. And that's incompatible. And now I'll negotiate with them all day long. Matter of fact, most of my counterparts that I'm negotiating with for my clients, a lot of them are champions, but I won't take a champion as a client. Yeah. Not very often. It's very rare. Um, be, and and it's a it's a special kind of champion that I'll take as a client because they won't appreciate the collaborative style. They'll think it's a waste of time and energy. Mm -hmm. um, they they'll just want to go in and they just want to be a, a barracuda about it. And 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 that's that that incompatibility. You know, my style doesn't work for everybody. That's wrong. I'm I'm, I'm good. I really like that because I know everybody that's listening in, uh, it's it's one of the points that you make, which is like negotiation is not restricted to the boardroom. You know, it is it is everywhere in life. Uh, and as I started to hear you describe uh, just your viewpoint on negotiation more, I started to see more and more of it as like, oh, yes, of course. And it makes it so much easier. It almost sounds like there's a deeper level of personal values that drive negotiation styles, uh, potentially, you know, and it almost seems like through looking at it through the lens of the negotiation styles, we can find a way to find people who have compatible values, uh, with our, uh, with ourselves if we decide to do business with them, get into relationships and so on and so forth. But I'm just theory crafting here. You've literally written the book, so you have to tell me if it's on point or not. Here's the thing, right? So there are times there are times when you need a barracuda. Let's say you're you're on the edge of litigation, right? Ah, uh, yeah. You need you know you need somebody who's gonna go in. You're not looking to create value, right? Litigation is not about creating value for anybody but the attorneys. But you you don't want to lose that litigation, right? So there are times when you are when you want somebody whose primary style is that, right? Where it's winner take all. Litigation is a great example for that, right? Um, or it can be. It's not even always the case because most litigation settles out of court anyway. But, um, but you know, that's, that's an example of when that, when that can be the case. There's also a misconception that if I'm going to be, if, if somebody is an asshole, I have to be an asshole too, right? I got to, you know, it's like, you know, if I'm negotiating with a champion, then I got to be a champion too. That's a perfect marriage for getting zero value or very limited value out of the deal. There's a yeah. study out of the University of Copenhagen in Denmark that actually identified how much value typically gets left on the table in business negotiations because nobody has asked effective enough questions to discover it. Hmm. And it's 45%. 45 there. So if we, think about, if we think about our pie, right? And yeah. we assume that the pie is 100%. Like we walk into the negotiation, we're like, okay, we're, we got 
right? But no, you actually have 145%. And so, so for me, it's like questions that I am always, that I always ask like early in the negotiation is what is an amazing deal look like for you? What does that look like for you? And then at when we're almost done, when we're, we're we we think we're like we're we're about ready to sign something, it's like, is there anything we can do to make this deal even better for both mm. of us? Right? Because there often is. And it's like if you start with this idea of there's more value here than we think that there is, because we get busy, we think that we we are myopic and and for me, what has made me in, in and and my clients will say this too, what makes me really an incredible negotiator is there is no boundary to my curiosity level. Mm-hmm. I I am so excited to peek around the corner. What's around the corner? Oh, what's over here? What's over here? Right. And one, you know, when you're interviewing, you did with Jay Abraham. One of the things that he talked about that I was like, oh, yes, was, you know, how the collapsible baby stroller was based (laughs) off of the collapsibility of airplane wheels, right? When you look outside of the tiny world that we live in as we're negotiating, whatever that is, and we say, what's effective over here? And can I make that effective here in this specific situation? Right. And we allow ourselves the opportunity and give ourselves permission to to be really curious. Another reason why seven year olds are such incredible negotiators mm-hmm. is because they're so curious. And as adults, we have trained ourselves not to do that. Um, there's somebody in my network named Jeff Harry who does a whole lot of work around the art of play in business. Not we're not mm-hmm. you know, not talking. And part of why he started that is because he worked at Lego where they didn't play at all. And he was <laughs> he was so disappointed by that. He was, <laughs> yeah. he was devastated by it. And it it's about, and it's really about how do you stay curious about everything? How do you explore? How do you how do you not shut that down yet at the same time make sure that you're you're making decisions in a timely fashion? And, and you do that, like Jay said, you do that by exploring beyond just where you're at. And that's true in effective negotiation. Some of my best ideas for a, a specific contract that I'm negotiate, negotiating from, like an IT services contract. Some of the best stuff is based off a negotiation I did 15 years ago in an oil and gas client, right? It's like... Yeah. Oh, that thing we tried there, that might work here, right? And and it's like that not getting stuck in kind of the way that we do things all the time and being being open to exploring and and discovery, being an explorer um is what makes really effective negotiators effective. I love that and I only have like four more questions. You've given so much, so much value. I, I love, I love when we have like a show where I know people are going to be able to come back to it again and again and again. And I can tell this is one of those because um, it's just, it's timeless. Uh, and all of what you just shared leads me up to another question I have, which is around the life cycle of what like a multi-billion dollar deal looks like. 
Uh, just what does that look like? And then how does being an ambassador play into the different stages? Well, this might surprise you, but the life cycle of a billion dollar deal is identical to the life cycle of a $10,000. Nice. <laughs> the thing we get so wrapped up in the zeros, right? Um, mm -hmm. the, the difference is that there are a lot more people involved in a billion dollar uh. deal. And when somebody says, oh, I, you know, and including myself, when I say that I've worked on a hundred billion dollar deals, I didn't do that alone. I didn't work on a $2.4 billion deal alone. Those are team negotiations. You got massive numbers of people who are involved in those, those deals. And what I love about those deals is I, I love the multicultural aspect because, you know, culture changes by latitude and longitude. And so no matter, you know, somebody, if I've got a, an entirely American U.S. team, right, it doesn't matter if I'm from Montana. That means I'm different than somebody who grew up in Brooklyn, right? I, we got a different, we got, we're different cultures. Um, but the life cycle is, you know, we, I, over the course of my career, I've identified three very simple steps to every negotiation. You have to assess, you have to assess yourself, you have to assess your counterpart, and you have to assess the situation and the environment you're negotiating. And then you actually have to ask. Right. And then you have to take action. You have to sign the contract and you have to live the deal. And in the living of the deal, you have to be open to the possibility of renegotiating as the relationship unfolds and the environment changes. And it's really circular. Negotiation is a circular process. Um, and so the, and that, that's kind of it. That's the life cycle. It's, it's not super complex. We, we want to overcomplicate it. Um, it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination. It's definitely not easy. Even for people like myself and others who, who've done thousands of negotiations, negotiation is not easy. I can be selling, you know, a pen to 10 different people and maybe it's a really good expensive pen and how I sell it to each of those 10 people has differences. There's subtleties, even though it's the same product, right? The, what, how somebody else, how each of those 10 people value that product is slightly different, right? And I have to, as a negotiator, part of what I have to do is discover how they are assigning value. How do they, they define value? I just had that conversation with somebody who was talking to us about doing um, some corporate training for them. And she's like, well, how much would that cost? And I said, well, how are you assigning value? Mm. How are you determining value? Right? And that was not something she thought of. But we should all be thinking about how do we define value? And where does that differ from how our counterparts are defined? I really love that, the reflective question of asking, how do you define value? Because that is really the basis of any price if we're going to be doing value-based pricing. And the other part was really the meta structure of the life cycle. And so if I understand correctly, it's ask, uh, sorry, assess, ask, and then keep asking, it sounds like. Um, Did I miss well, a ask. step in there? So assess, ask, and act. So the act, act yes. part is the real, it's where, it's where you find out whether the deal you, you entered into is actually going to work. Right. Right. And, and it's, 
you know, it's okay. Are we getting inventory fast enough? Are we, do we need to change something in the process? Do we, you know, are we both generating the profits that we wanted to do? Are we both taking on an, a fair amount of risk relative to the relationship, right? How does it play with the rest of my strategy? All of those kind of things come into play. And then, and then it's having the courage if the deal stops working for one side, having the courage in the relationship to, to raise our hands and say, hey, I know we have this agreement, but it's not working for me right now. It, what can we do about it? And sometimes the what we can do is we can renegotiate it. We can make adjustments. And sometimes the what we can do is I can't do anything to change this. And we have to make the decision to, to part ways and find yes. different customers, suppliers, et cetera. And no, because no is no is a really freeing word. Um, it gives us there's a lot of freedom. Freedom comes from saying no. Um, saying yes all the time doesn't always get us where we're trying to go. And so, um, so yeah. I really love that. And I love how well-developed your life philosophy is. It's very clear that you negotiate from a deeply, not just uh, known, but tested set of personal and professional values that has stood the test of time. And it sounds like you are constantly updating <laughs> based on new information that's coming in as well. I have just a few more questions. If you could go back in time to not Christine of 19, but just after finishing Harvard, you could give yourself any advice. What would you tell yourself knowing everything you know now? I would... I think the advice that I would give myself would be around turning fear over. Hmm. Like finding the opposite of fear and leaning into the opposite of fear. Um, even after I graduated from Harvard, I had, I, I was very full of fear and it prevented me it from doing, taking the path that I really wanted to at the time. And so I, ended up on a path and I wasn't I wasn't happy in that path and I stayed unhappy for a really really long time because I believed I was so wrapped up in um being afraid of what people would think of me being afraid of failing being just being afraid you name it I was afraid and mm -hmm. that fear um, really drove my drove my life. I allowed it to rule my life for a long, long time. And so for me, it's really about having discovered the opposite. I wish I, my advice to myself then would be lean into the opposite of fear, which for me is, is faith in something greater than myself. Mm. I love that. Where can we find out more about you? So um, our website is vennegotiation.com, um, but hook up with me on, on LinkedIn. I, you can check out our YouTube channel. We're on TikTok. We're kind of all over the place. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty responsive. So, um, so yeah, just, just reach out any of those places. I would, I would love to connect with your audience. 
Thank you so much for the transparency, the knowledge, the wisdom, and the good times. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to us putting this out there to the world because I know it's going to help a lot of people. Well, thank you. It has been an absolute honor to talk with you today. Hey, thanks for checking out the show. If you liked it, go ahead and hit the like button and also subscribe so you don't miss another one. It also tells us which ones that you like the most so that we can then do more interviews like that. If you want to go from idea to implementation, though, especially if you're wanting to productize your expertise so that you can scale your impact on your clients and, of course, grow your business, then join our email list. There we're going to talk about how modern consultants can productize their expertise so that they can have a greater impact on the world around them and live life on their terms. If that's up your alley, I hope to see you on the other side. Talk soon.